The FX Medicine team would like to thank the enormous generosity of all our guests who have graciously donated their time, their expertise, and their stories of both triumph and adversity. Most of all, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for your continued feedback and support, and for giving us direction and purpose as we move forward together into the future. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Brad Leach, who's a clinical nutritionist, Ayurvedic herbalist, lecturer and research supervisor at Endeavour College of Natural Health. Brad is currently undertaking his PhD at the Australian Research Centre in Complementary and Integrative Medicine at the University of Technology, Sydney, where his research involves developing a clinical practice guideline for the assessment and management of increased intestinal permeability for Australian practitioners. He's an international presenter and published author, writing both peer-reviewed manuscripts and book chapters, including the Food Allergy and Intolerance chapter in the prestigious third edition of Clinical Naturopathy by Saracen Wardle. In addition to teaching and researching, Brad works in clinical practice, where he draws upon 10 years of experience within the complementary medicine profession to provide his clients with practical and evidence-based treatments for the management of autoimmune diseases. Welcome to FX Medicine, Brad. How are you going? I'm very well. It's great to be here, Andrew. We're discussing intestinal permeability, and this ties in with leaky gut syndrome. We'll get to that a little bit later. But I guess first, what exactly is intestinal permeability, and when was it first mentioned in the literature? Uh, interesting question. You see, the first concept of this so-called leaky gut was established in the literature during the 1965 uh, and was collectively referred to as the intestinal pore hypothesis. Now, during the early 1970s, research emerged surrounding the association between intestinal permeability and celiac disease, with uh, preliminary data suggesting that the degree of intestinal permeability correlates with the severity of of, of celiac disease. Now, just think about that. We have known about the correlation between intestinal permeability and disease for over 50 years. Now, it wasn't until uh, another 20 years later that the action was actually discovered by uh, Dr. Vassano and his team over over in Italy. So intestinal permeability involves the loss of integrity within the small intestine. Now, uh, more precisely, intestinal permeability occurs when the intracellular proteins holding the tight junctions together actually disassemble. Uh, This this disassembling of the tight junctions is governed by one of my favorite proteins, a particular protein called zonulin. Now, in fact, zonulin is the only physiological mediator discovered to date known to regulate intestinal permeability. When we're talking about intestinal permeability, we always tend to refer to the small intestine. What about the large bowel? Well, that's, that's completely different. You see, that's, uh, that's uh, large intestinal permeability. Uh, and a lot of the research uh, is actually focused on small intestinal permeability. Yes, we can have permeability of, of, of the stomach lining and the large intestines or, or uh, collectively the whole gastrointestinal tract. But when we're actually thinking of this uh, leaky gut, this leaky gut syndrome, it's actually referring to um, the small intestine. Right. Now, what's, what's quite interesting is actually looking at the etiology of this small intestinal permeability, which is quite different to, let's say, gastric or colonic permeability. So uh, small intestinal permeability in itself is actually thought to be contributed through uh, environmental, genetic, and and epigenetic factors. Now, when I talk about particular environmental factors contributing to this small intestinal permeability, it's important to remember that it does this via the release of zonulin, okay? Uh, Within, like, um, uh, gastric permeability and colonic permeability, there's other mediators at play. But within the small intestines, 
the intestinal permeability may actually lead to this increased absorption of dietary antigens, also known as uh, lipopolysaccharides, LPS, from, from gram-negative bacteria. Mm. Now, this exposure, as, as we, uh, a lot of us uh, already know, is that it can actually interfere with the host's immune system. It can stimulate inflammation and actually go on to lead to uh, dysbiosis. Okay, so you mentioned viral genetic and epigenetic factors. So, you know, when we're talking about genetic factors, I'd be thinking about celiac disease. When we're talking about epigenetic factors, we'd be talking, I think we'll be discussing this a little bit later, about the, you know, the food stressors that we put into our gut that we have to handle. What about the viral causes, though? Listen, there is a lot of research uh, linking uh, a number of uh, particular viruses, you know, including the, the Epstein-Barr virus, you know, the, the mono, uh, into the development uh, and progression of this intestinal permeability. But at the end of the day, it's a lack of research which is preventing us to actually have a, a, a concluding uh, evidence statement to say, yes, these particular, particular uh, viruses can actually contribute to this uh, pathogenesis of uh, intestinal permeability. Right. Um, and when we actually look at intestinal permeability from a prevalence perspective, mm. it's actually quite difficult to, uh, to calculate. Um, you know, some uh, initial research suggests that about 5% of healthy individuals will actually have uh, intestinal permeability. Now, this is compared to um, the prevalence of people with, let's say, an, uh, a condition with a known association. Someone with one of these uh, conditions with a known association may have a prevalence anywhere between 10 to you know, almost 80%. Um, and it's actually been suggested that one in three individuals will experience intestinal permeability in one of these um, associated conditions. Okay. Again, with when we're talking about intestinal permeability or IP, this is normal to a certain extent, correct? Yes. Yeah. Intestinal permeability is a natural homeostatic mechanism essential for life. We, we need it, and it was actually discovered through this way, we actually need it to flush out bacteria when there's an infection within our gut. Okay? Um, and and uh, some research is actually suggesting that it, it either supports or facilitates um, immune transfer between the mother and the fetus. So before I get into, you know, the doom and gloom of, of uh, intestinal permeability, we need to remember that it's normal. It's a natural part of life. But it's, it's when it's um, uh, long-term or when it's um, uh, simulated constantly, that's when there's a number of consequences that can actually uh, develop from it. Uh, uh, within the research com uh, community at the moment, one of the uh, the biggest questions we are trying to answer is: Does intestinal permeability cause the, the disease, or does the disease cause intestinal permeability? Right, right. Now, what we know is intestinal permeability is suggested to be involved in the pathogenesis of autoimmune diseases such as Crohn's disease, celiac disease, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, uh, type one diabetes and even um, RBS type D, that's, that's diarrhea. Um, now, many theories suggest that without intestinal permeability, particular diseases wouldn't progress. Well, with, with many studies showing uh, IP is, uh, well, IP, sorry, uh, intestinal permeability is involved in the development and exacerbation of autoimmune diseases. This involvement of intestinal permeability in diseases is, is also seen in uh, 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 Crohn's disease, where it, it can actually serve as a valid predictor for any uh, relapse within Crohn's disease. Now, on the other hand, uh, correcting intestinal permeability has been shown to reduce clinical signs and symptoms associated with a number of these diseases. Whereas, on the other hand, if we actually induce intestinal permeability, this can actually increase disease severity. Um, intestinal permeability in itself, one of the uh, prominent theories suggests that intestinal permeability is both a cause and consequence of this uh, lipopolysaccharide absorption. You know, lipopolysaccharides, LPS, yep. has been shown to trigger inflammation uh, that may alter glucose metabolism, 
resulting in poor glycemic control, uh, insulin resistance. Uh, in addition to this, dyslipidemia may contribute to the loss of intestinal integrity as the, uh, the HDL is in part responsible for neutralizing these uh, LPS. Okay, so is LPS the only cause, though, of this intestinal permeability worsening? No, not at all. I would, you've also got uh, inflammation. Yep. Inflammation can significantly uh, exacerbate um, uh, intestinal permeability in itself. And then intestinal permeability can then go on and, and can cause uh, inflammation. A number of um, Dr. Vitano's research has actually shown that um, any consumption of, of gluten, whether you're a healthy individual, whether you've got celiac disease or um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, there will be a release of uh, inflammation uh, when the cells come in contact with, with gluten molecules. Even in healthy individuals who aren't celiac? Yes, there is very minute, uh, but still that release of, uh, I believe it's interleukin-8, which can then uh, contribute onto this uh, intestinal permeability picture. Okay, but but is that still along the spectrum of, you know, the, just the normal intestinal permeability, the controlled IP, um, you know, not necessarily pathogenic? You know how some people are saying gluten is bad. It's always bad. It's bad for everybody. What it, what it is is this uh, intestinal permeability, it's not the holy grail of, let's say, treatment. Mm. Um, I, I myself, you know, like, you know, the, someone who dedicates their entire life to intestinal permeability, it's, it's interesting because intestinal permeability is just one part of it. I would actually say um, that dysbiosis would actually be more significant in a clinical, uh, clinical picture than this intestinal permeability. Because, okay, yes, um, you've got intestinal permeability, but if you've got um, the good bacteria, if you've got a good diet, then that intestinal permeability in itself isn't going to be the end of the world. It's when it's combined with this, like, let's say, dysbiosis picture. You know, probiotics have not been the holy grail that we would like them to be with regards to immune-mediated inflammatory disorders like Crohn's. Mm. Um, you know, they've gotten certain results in some studies, but it just hasn't been that switch that we would have liked. Lending, I guess, to the theory that it, there's other controllers rather than just dysbiosis. Um, having said that, certain antibiotic ther therapy can lessen inflammatory disorders of the gut in certain instances. So it's kind of like, wow, where do we go with this sort of thing? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. If we're talking about measuring IP, and, and I guess I've jumped the gun here a little bit, but, but if we're talking about what do you measure, we don't have a one phenotype of what, is, what a healthy microbiome microbiota is. We don't subscribe, or it's not necessarily accepted if you like to measure IP. What do we measure? Well, well, the, well there you go. I mean, you, you basically answered your own question. What I can say <laughs> is there is no... No gold standard for measuring intestinal permeability. Um, now, this makes identifying intestinal permeability very difficult mm. and controversial at mm. the same time. Um, and I actually believe not having um, a 100% reliable test to identify intestinal permeability is our biggest drawback when it comes to researching intestinal permeability. Um, what we do have, we've got a number of tests on the market available to practitioners that they can use. Um, but what I can say is uh, these tests, they have their limitations. Yeah. So let's take the the, uh, the dual sugar test, the lactulose mannitol, probably the most common test that practitioners will be aware of or actually use within their clinical practice. Um, this dual sugar test actually involves, you know, the consumption of two sugars um, after an overnight fast, followed by the collection of urine for about six hours. Now, the fundamental principle behind this dual sugar test is the different molecule size of uh, the mono and disaccharides. When the integrity of the intestine is healthy, the monosaccharide, which is the mannitol, uh, is easily absorbed, whereas the disaccharide, the lactulose, is poorly absorbed and remains in the intestines. During altered intestinal permeability, the, the disaccharide is actually readily absorbed, resulting in an increased ratio between the, the lactulose and the mannitol in the urine. 
Uh, although many factors such as you know kidney function, uh, water consumption, and other variables can actually be controlled for when we actually take two sugars, there is one issue with this test, and it is collection time. Uh, all pathology labs in Australia will collect collect urine for six hours. However, the research is actually showing time and time again that this is too long. Uh, The ideal time is somewhere between that three to four hours of urine collection. Right. So this long collection time allows for potential inaccurate results. Sure, we could could just change collection time, um, but we would first need to recalculate the reference range which would require about oh, 150 uh, participants and, and over 100,000. Yeah. Um, I mean, hey, Andrew, if you've got that laying around, give it to me. I'd be more than happy <laughs> to the, do, the, do that study. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case when it comes to research. Um, a way around this is to actually measure the dual sugar within the blood. Okay, so I actually stumbled across this test only recently, yeah. and it's from the, uh, the CS. Are, uh, the CSIRO um, uh, uh, lab. Now, they actually do a test where you fast for, for 10 hours, you drink a very similar dual sugar solution, you wait 90 minutes, and then you do blood collection, okay? Um, and then they measure the, the, the amount of sugars within your blood rather than waiting for it to be uh, present within the urine. This test in itself... Uh, uh, it's potential. Um, there's research to to support it. The one thing that I would change about it is when they actually take the sugar test. Um, so uh, the test actually is only available within Adelaide, which is unfortunate, and participants actually have to go in to the clinic, take the sugar, and then wait 90 minutes. Uh, for me, you know, if you're looking at time as as a, as a principle, you know, a lot of people don't want to be waiting around for for 90 minutes for sugar to get into their blood. So potentially, you know, there's the the blood test which could have potential benefits. Okay. Yeah. Now on the same line of blood, we've also got something called zonulin. So remember, the disassembling of the tight junctions is governed by this particular protein called zonulin. Um, now, in fact, zonulin, as uh, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, is the only physiological mediator discovered to date known to regulate this intestinal permeability. A few interesting things about about the zonulin is zonulin is an acute phase protein, okay, meaning it only has a short half life, okay. So you have two options when it comes around to testing zonulin uh, within tumors, okay. You've got serum zonulin and you've got stool zonulin, okay. Both are very different, especially from a clinical perspective. You've got the serum zonulin. Now, the good news is the serum zonulin and the dual sugar test, that's the lactulose mannitol test, are both strongly correlated with each other, which is great news. Right. However, however, serum zonulin is more likely to give a false positive result, mm. which is, oh, I mean, we, 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 we don't need that. Okay. Why? Because zonulin is actually released from adipose tissues. So someone who has a high BMI or has a metabolic-like condition may have higher levels of zonulin not caused by the disassembling of the tight junctions. Um, in fact, uh, a study out of Monash University, actually uh, was published at uh, the beginning of this year, advises the medical community to exercise caution when in ta- in interpreting uh, these commercial uh, zonulin tests, which is Massive. Yeah. Now, this particular study shows the commercially available zonulin test here in Australia doesn't actually detect zonulin. Okay. Well, we still don't know which protein or protein mm-hmm. uh, this so-called zonulin test is measuring. Um, although it may turn out later on that it does reflect intestinal permeability, but we don't know yet. So. Um, and and here's, here's the next catch. Serum zonulin is no longer available in Australia. The, begin, the beginning of this year, in January, it was available. Yeah. Um, however, it's been, let's say, stripped from the market. Why? Now, some may say it's because the cost of it. Some may say potentially because of the study that I just mentioned. Yeah. 
the, the thing we need to remember when it comes around to zonulin, okay, at the moment where it stands, uh, serum zonulin in clinical practice may not be the, the best test to utilize. However, Research utilizing serum zonulin is slightly different. You see, we can actually control for, the, for these potential confounders such as BMI and age. Thereby, when we actually see a study where they use zonulin to actually assess and interpret intestinal permeability, yes, we should always take it with a grain of salt, but we should consider it to be more accurate than what we would see in clinical practice because hypothetically, these researchers would have controlled for a number of these factors um, which uh, are affecting some of the results. Now, that serum zonulin, you've also got uh, fecal zonulin or, or stool zonulin. Right. This is, this is one of my favorites. Mm. Now, the stool zonulin is generally better um, um, to assess the early stages of, let's say, permeability, okay, or when there's active intestinal permeability. Uh, the, the, the other use of this stool zonulin is in conditions where it's situated within the gastrointestinal system, so IBS, IBD. Now, unlike the serum zonulin, stool zonulin is more likely to give ACE both negative, so we oh. need to bear that in mind. Um, the good news is it's relatively cheap. So to actually test fecal zonulin, you're only looking at about $40, okay? And, you know, if, you, if you're doing, let's say, a, a stool test, you know, you can actually add on other tests which would actually provide some great clinical evidence, such as, let's say, cow protectin, an inflammatory marker. Um, so those couple of tests, they would, uh, they would be the most used or, let's say, the most somewhat accurate tests. There are other tests, let's say, um, suggestive tests, that a lot of um, clinicians will use within clinical practice. And, and we know this from, from previous research. Um, and, and these suggestive methods would be your food intolerance, your food sensitivity test, looking at IgG. Um, some naturopaths may utilize iridology or even hemoview, um, or even, on the other hand, kinesiology. What I can say about these few methods is they're suggestive. Mm. There's very limited research to actually conclude that they work. So, so where do I actually stand when it comes to the most accurate method to test for intestinal permeability? We must use what we have available. Okay, what we have available. Okay, it's not perfect, but it's what we have available. We can also utilize the rule of three. That is, if there's three uh, factors that present in, in, the, in the patient themselves that indicate that they have intestinal permeability, then maybe they do. Maybe they have you know, food sensitivities. Maybe they have a positive lactulose mannitol test. Uh, and maybe they have other associated um, uh, conditions. You know, if they've got the rule of three, then yes. Now, you must use your clinical skills. Take into account signs and symptoms. You must utilize signs and symptoms that actually correlate with intestinal permeability, not like this hypothetical correlated signs and symptoms. A couple of questions about the measurement. So my big issue is repeatability. So when we're talking about, you know, you mentioned the time lag with regards to lactulose mannitol um, coming out in the urine. So has that been tracked over a time, say, from 30 minutes to, you know, one, two, three, four hours, and you see a, let's say, a normal curve or an area under the curve being developed? Is there any standard for that that's been developed yet, or is this one of the whole problems that we just don't have that as yet? Listen, so a, uh, a study came out, um, forgive me, I forgot the, the researcher's name, but her entire uh, PhD thesis was uh, this topic in itself. And, you know, she used um, uh, non-steroid anti-inflammatories to induce intestinal permeability to, to actually measure when these sugars uh, within the urine and so forth, and, and she she tracked it. Uh, I believe every thirty minutes, or maybe even every fifteen minutes, right. um, over uh, from very start up until um, eight, and then going on to twenty four hours. And this is where I, I I mentioned this three to four hour window. She actually concludes two and a half to four hours is what represents small intestinal permeability, not colonic permeability, not um, um, other types of permeability, but 
small intestine. Gotcha. So yes, the research is out there. The research is saying, and now this is still new, okay? This is still new research saying that it's the collection time, which is the biggest hindrance mm. when it comes around to the, the lactulose mannitol test. And potentially, all we need to do is, is, is to adjust the collection time. Now, I can tell you, I've, I've recommended this test a number of times. I know that my patients would be much happier collecting urine for a shorter time than hanging around at home waiting to, to collect urine for six hours. So you know, there's two benefits there. With the lactulose mannitol test, you've also got lactulose being basically a food, um, a, like mm. a prebiotic food as well. So it's kind of like a, a confounder that the test is also a treatment. You know, that sort of, what if, we, if, we, if dysbiosis is a potential cause of the problem and your measurement is actually a treatment, <laughs> doesn't that, isn't that one of the confounders? Um, a number of uh, studies have actually, you know, looked at this, the safety profile. And yes, this, the lactulose mannitol test, it's a very safe test. I and mean, the research has shown that time and time again. So it's not like if someone, let's say, presents with, with SIBO, it's not like it's, it's a potential um, uh, exacerbator of it, mm. although it's not advised uh, in someone with diabetes because of the sugar content. Mm. Um, it's, 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 it's what we have available. Mm. It's only one test. Um, I guess yeah. the issue comes how often you're going to repeat it. The the question with zonulin measured via serum, you've then got an invasive test, so that decreases right away the people who can conduct that test. Um, yeah. So um, I was interested, though, when you're talking about fecal zonulin, um, what about mm -hmm. breakdown products from zonulin, like these Claudins and, you know, although this would be fraught again with, with issues, um, the actinomycin cytoskeleton proteins. Like, Listen, within the research, they're available and they're being utilized within the research. A number of uh, studies will, will utilize these, these byproducts. It's what's available to clinicians. Oh, uh, okay. Um, now, because my entire, because I'm a clinician at heart and because my entire uh, focus is intestinal permeability within clinical practice, you know, it's, it's like, let's just focus on what practitioners may actually potentially be able to use rather than dreaming of uh, a particular test which is um, uh, access, uh, which is not accessible mm. um, but highly accurate. You know, we, we've, got, we've got to work with what's available. So just going on from that lactulose mannitol test, Brad, with regards to repeatability, have we got data that shows that an increased intestinal permeability, i.e. pathological process, is repeatable? That it that once you get to a certain stage, it's a pathological process, not just a normal process that waxes and wanes throughout, uh, you know, the daily activities of handling food and things. Yes. Okay. So there are a number of confounders when it comes around to uh, the measurement of uh, intestinal permeability, but um, uh, research has shown that the lactulose mannitol test is repeatable. Okay. Right. Although the research is old, you know, we're probably looking at twenty, maybe twenty-five years. Um, all the, the, the particular research, you know, where they get, you know, people with celiac disease, people who are healthy, and they re repeat it time and time and time again to ensure that it's, it's giving the same result. It is a repeatable test. So we know that, um, which, which is uh, almost support saying, hey, yes, it is a beneficial test in clinical practice. It will give the same result time and time again, but it just comes down to, to this collection time. Yeah. Okay, so that's the important thing. Are you working with various labs to, you know, show them this research to get out there to, I mean, this would change the landscape of the usefulness of that test? Listen, um, how do I say this in the nicest way possible? <laughs> um, I don't want to make any enemies. Listen, I have, um, let's say I've approached um, companies. However, it, it comes down to this test retails for about $110, okay? Um, and I need a minimum of $100,000. It's just not feasible. Gotcha. That's just, at the end of the day, if someone has a, hundred, a lazy 100000 laying around, sure, I'll do the study for them. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to actually get um, pathology companies to do this um, because it's going to cost them a lot of money. You know, we've spoken about IP as a normal and a pathological process. And I guess we get into here the leaky gut syndrome, which has it's dogging us now. Um, we have leaky gut, but what's the difference with this leaky gut syndrome? All right. Well, what I can tell you is I was the greatest 
skeptic when it came around to this so-called leaky gut. Okay, let's, let's be serious. Holes within our intestines, how is that physiologically uh, possible? You know, it, it, it's not. The reason why I was so naive, it, it's simple. I was thinking about leaky gut syndrome. Leaky gut syndrome is considered both uh, medically and from my own um, perspective as pseudoscience. Okay, whereas yep. increased intestinal permeability isn't. Now, if we look, a syndrome by definition is a collection of medical signs and symptoms that are correlated with each other that are not contributed to a single disease. Thereby, you know, there's no such thing as this leaky gut syndrome. Um, there's, there's three lines of thinking when it comes around to this, this integrity of the, the lining. It's number one, you've got a syndrome, aka leaky gut syndrome. Number two, you've got something, you've got a medical condition where it's a, it's a diagnosed medical condition. And number three is it's a reaction, uh, i.e. it's a response to a stimulus. Yeah. Okay. Intestinal permeability is not officially recognized as a medical condition anywhere in the world. Intestinal permeability is not a condition, but rather a reaction which is a concept that we need to get our heads around. We, as practitioners, can call intestinal permeability leaky gut. I do not have a problem with that, especially when we're talking to the client. We yeah. don't want to bamboozle them with increased intestinal permeability. Sure, use leaky gut or, or, or altered intestinal permeability. But when it comes around to talking with a practitioner, writing a manuscript in a paper, let's refer to it as intestinal permeability, increased intestinal permeability, or altered intestinal permeability, or altered intestinal integrity. Let's try and avoid this use of leaky gut so then it doesn't actually get confused with this leaky gut syndrome. In the same way that, uh, you know, a, a specialist will speak to a patient and say it's a problem with your tummy, but when they're speaking to a colleague, they'll say it's the right upper, right upper epigastric quadrant or something like that. Exactly, exactly. And, and when we actually look at this small intestinal permeability, it can actually be uh, classified further into two major subgroups. You've got what we call low-grade chronic small intestinal permeability. Bit of a mouthful, but that's what describes it. Now, that there is what we know within clinical practice. That's your so-called leaky gut in clinical practice. You've also got something called acute intestinal permeability. Now, this is more common within a hospital setting where uh, pathogenic bacteria will actually trigger a, train, a change in the intestinal integrity resulting in sepsis. Um, and then this kind of acute intestinal permeability is seen in conditions like um, a burn injury, you know, serious right. medical conditions yep. where there is a major and significant increase within your permeability in an acute setting, okay? But within clinical practice, we have this low-grade chronic intestinal permeability, just like we had low-grade chronic inflammation, okay? Yes, you know, their CRPs are, you know, two, three hundred, but if they've got a CRP, a key reactive protein of, you know, 20, 30, us as clinicians, we're still going to see that as significant as, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's see what's triggering this inflammation, just like within intestinal permeability, this low-grade um, intestinal permeability. Um, you know, and, and in fact, this, this uh, intestinal permeability within clinical practice can actually be broken down into further subgroups. Now, this is a, a particular theory that I'm working on at the moment, which I have actually proposed with, with my, uh, my authors, my co-authors um, within the literature, where we've got things called, let's say, alcohol-induced intestinal permeability. We have uh, exercise-induced. We have genetic-induced. We have medication-induced. We have pregnancy-induced. We have disease-induced. We have diet-induced. We have uh, uh, metabolic-induced. And, of course, dysbiosis-induced intestinal permeability. I've seen research with regards to the use of intravenous vitamin C, uh, hydrocortisone, and thiamine, I think it was. Basically, you know, they're not waiting for evidence now. They, they, they need something for sepsis. Drugs have been, just haven't worked. The proposed mechanism of action is the IV vitamin C is protecting endothelial linings. I'm wondering if that might be having some effect on acute intestinal perme acute increased intestinal permeability. What's your thoughts on that? Well, okay, that's that's difficult to to answer. But what I can tell you now, this will actually come as a surprise 
to a number of uh, your listeners. Mm. Um, vitamin C at, um, I think it would be about 400 milligrams, can actually induce intestinal permeability. Right. Okay. So, you know, you think of, let's say any, you go to a naturopath, you're on three or four different supplements. I guarantee you, you'll have, you know, a couple hundred milligrams of vitamin C in that. Mm. Okay. The research is showing that that the uh, 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 vitamin C is actually inducing intestinal permeability. They've actually done studies where they uh, uh, dose up uh, NSAIDs and vitamin C at the same time. And there's not a synergistic effect where they're actually saying that the mechanism of action for inducing intestinal permeability with the vitamin C and uh, the NSAIDs are different. Um, I mean, still in clinical practice, you know, I'll recommend vitamin C. I, I don't I don't think we have enough evidence or justification to warrant caution when it comes around to intestinal permeability, uh, when it comes around to, might I say, uh, vitamin C and intestinal permeability. But it's something that we may need to be aware of. Let's hypothetically say that, you know, someone is on, you know, 500 or 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C and they are presenting with so-called symptoms um, of intestinal permeability. Mm. Potentially, we can maybe withdraw that to see if that's having any uh, an, an effect on on the patient. So, so I guess this goes back to the range of normal versus the range of pathological intestinal permeability, doesn't it? You know, we yes. know that foods will increase intestinal permeability. That's part of the nutrient absorption process, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, now, now this is um, uh, quite interesting, and this actually you know, struck me quite hard. Moderate alcohol intake, equivalent to one standard drink a day, has actually been shown to induce intestinal permeability in healthy individuals mm. directly after consumption. Yeah, but is that bad? You know, like it can increase it, sure, but is that bad or is that just part of the normal waxing and waning of the homeostatic range of intestinal permeability? I would say that it's bad only when someone has dysbiosis as a minimum, okay? Right, right. Given the prevalence of dysbiosis within the community, okay, quite high. I mean, look, alcohol uh, consumption in itself can contribute to dysbiosis. So unless someone has a perfectly healthy gut, you know, they're not consuming um, uh, any uh, potential triggers within their diet um, and they've got a healthy digestive system, they're breaking down all these proteins, um, sure, this intestinal permeability isn't necessarily an issue, but it's when it's combined with, with inflammation, dysbiosis, and other um, uh, conditions which can actually be exacerbated. We've spoken before about these signs and symptoms. Which signs and symptoms are more reliable and which ones are just so vague that we have to leave them alone? Okay. I ask you and the listeners to, to think to yourself, what are the symptoms of intestinal permeability? Okay. Now, don't get confused by thinking about diagnosed diseases such as um, IBS, inflammatory bowel disease. Think about the symptoms. Okay. You're probably thinking about things like bloating, reflux, reflux, uh, gas, uh, this so-called brain fog, fatigue, indigestion, mood swings, and so on. Okay. This does not appear to be the case. Um, we actually we recently published a paper looking at risk factors for intestinal permeability in adults. Now, we identified over 100 potential risk factors associated with intestinal permeability. Now, the strongest risk factors were inflammation, dyslipidemia, uh, hypoglycemia, uh, hmm. anthropometric measurements that resemble obesity, advanced disease severity, uh, comorbidities, and the consumption of a Western-style diet. Now, an unexpected finding of our research was the small amount of digestive health symptoms reported to be associated with intestinal permeability alongside the magnitude of risk factors that actually resemble a metabolic-like condition. Right. Now, although digestive health symptoms such as bloating, uh, abdominal cramps and pain, heartburn, reflux, nausea, and, and I think gas were actually measured in a number of these studies, none were reported to be significantly correlated with the risk of intestinal permeability. Right. So it actually appears that digestive health symptoms lack the association with intestinal permeability. Yeah. However, this should not undermine the association between 
gastrointestinal conditions and intestinal permeability. Okay, so where do we go from there with regards to helping to identify that there's an issue with IP? Well, look at the other risk factors, okay? So there's other risk factors such as um, uh, the number of family members um, uh, you have that have a autoimmune disease, the number of uh, full-term pregnancies, uh, estrogen imbalance, uh, glyphosate exposure, uh, dietary impacts such as uh, fructose, uh, gluten, saturated fats, arachidonic acid and so forth, um, nutrient deficiencies such as vitamin D, zinc and glutamine, or, or whether the patient is taking things like antibiotics, methyltrexate, NSAIDs, um, uh, acute psychological stress, okay, um, and also acoustic stress. Okay, acoustic stress. Hmm. Have you heard of this one, Andrew? Yeah, I have. Yeah, acoustic stress can actually stimulate both inflammation and intestinal permeability. Okay, so I've, I've actually got a, a business proposition for, for anyone who, who's listening. Okay, if you think about where you are exposed to the greatest level, and let's say annoying level of acoustic stress, you'd be looking at, uh, well, here in Sydney, you'd be looking at King's Cross. You know, you'd be looking at these venues where uh, there's, you know, there's nightclubs and, and, and dance areas. So the business proposition for you is to actually stand in front of these nightclubs, handing out earplugs, saying it will reduce intestinal permeability, it will reduce <laughs> the inflammation. There you go. And that's another avenue <laughs> we can go down. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to see that sort of handed out at building sites, even though there's adequate warnings about protecting your hearing. You see so many work people on building sites. Uh, not taking care of their hearing, um, even in such a loud and monotonously monotonously loud uh, environment. Yeah, um, and and you see the the other interesting thing is when looking at these risk factors is the synergistic effect that some may have with each other. Mm. Now, sure, there may be more that we know within clinical practice, but what the research is actually showing is when there's uh, more than one of these potential risk factors, it can actually be exacerbated. So uh, in particular, things like a high BMI, uh, age, alcohol consumption, and inflammation, when they're combined with any of these risk factors, the likelihood of, let's say, intestinal permeability actually increases. Uh, we may also look at someone's diet. Now, this one comes uh, as a surprise, but a high-energy, uh, energy, nutrient-dense diet with either... Um, Inadequate protein intake or excessive animal-derived protein in, co uh, in combination with, with alcohol consumption are a potential risk factor for this intestinal permeability and something that we need to be aware of within clinical practice. So with, with regards to treatment, when we've got no given uh, gold standard test and the symptoms don't necessarily correlate with what we would think would be the obvious symptoms of intestinal permeability, should we just treat with things like a plant-based diet, good fats from mainly non-animal-derived or, say, more fish-derived um, fats and, and vegetable-derived fats? Where do we head with this with regards to treatment? What's your, what's your advice to practitioners? Well, I mean, that comes down to what does the patient want? We've got to remember we are here to help and serve the patient. What if the patient wants to be tested? What if the patient wants that confirmation, I do or I don't want intestinal permeability? Um, that's something we need to bear in mind. Um, but when it comes around to um, uh, particular things regarding the, the treatment and assessment of this intestinal permeability for um, practitioners, I, sure, I can give some, some recommendations. Um, the number one thing I would say, and this is quite interesting, um, is the effect that exercise has on uh, intestinal permeability, okay? Now, we know from the research that prolonged exercise can actually increase core temperature, yep. okay, to about 39 degrees. However, intestinal temperature can reach about 41 degrees, okay? Now, this is because there's, there's less blood flow within the intestines and the, uh, and the temperature increases because we're unable, uh, the blood's unable to leave uh, and be able to cool down. Mm -hmm. Now, here's one for you. It only takes uh, an increase of two degrees in the intestine for intestinal permeability to be increased by threefold. Right. Okay? Something that the practitioner needs to be aware of. Now, 
a recent systematic review, or actually not that recent now, probably 2017, actually concluded that the amount and intensity of exercise, okay, found to be the threshold for uh, inducing intestinal permeability is less than two hours of exercise at 60% of your best. So I recommend practitioners during, let's say, this gut repair phase of your your, your treatment protocol, you know, if you go, all right, I'm going to treatment protocol for, for one month um, of, of this gut repair, okay, in that time, limit intense exercise, okay? However, if, if that's unavoidable, then utilize the things with the research to say, um, to actually uh, reverse the negative effect of alcohol-induced intestinal permeability. They are things like uh, zinc, uh, glutamine, and in particular, probiotics. Um Another uh, uh, potential advice to practitioners would be to incorporate signs and symptoms and other biomarkers into your differential diagnosis. Okay, yes, if you've got a test, great, but also assess the patient as themselves. You know, look to see whether there's inflammation, whether there's that dis, uh, dyslipidemia um, and other contributing factors to this um, uh, intestinal permeability picture. Now, just treating the tight junctions of the small intestine is significantly insignificant for the treatment of intestinal permeability. We need to remember that if intestinal permeability is present, it's not only it's not the only and one part of of that. It's it's the one part of the whole, and we must treat the person holistically and treat the whole person rather than just that one part. Of, of that so-called intestinal permeability. Brad, there's so much more that we could delve into here. This is such a can of worms, and, and I think it's indicative of a change in what vernacular we need to be using when we're describing you know, normal versus pathological processes and indeed wanting to test and treat things. I'd love to get you back on the show at a later stage, but in the meantime, can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD and the research that you're doing? Yes, yeah, sure, Andrew. Um, you see, my PhD involves the development of a clinical practice guideline for the assessment and management of increasing personal permeability ah. for practitioners here in Australia. I, I can't emphasize enough just how important this guideline will be. We need consistency and integrity when it comes around to the assessment of intestinal permeability. Uh, for instance, our previous research has shown that there's uh, confusion among clinicians as to the most appropriate method of identifying intestinal permeability, and they generally rely on patient signs and symptoms as a method of assessment. It is the aim of our research to provide clinicians with direction as to which health condition should be assessed for intestinal permeability, factors to be considered in the management of intestinal permeability, and the available uh, treatment methods. We, we want to answer the following two questions. How, when, and why should practitioners test for intestinal permeability? Mm. And secondly, what are the treatment options for intestinal permeability? Now, it's it's one thing to actually um, uh, develop a clinical practice guideline, and it's another thing to actually make it accessible. That's why our project isn't just about the development, but will also involve the dissemination and implementation of this guideline. Uh, we're actually going to uh, just, uh, implement it within clinical practice and educational institutions. Now, as part of the development of a clinical practice guideline, it's important to incorporate the views and preferences of the consumer. You see, the involvement of consumers ensures that the guidelines are not only accurate, mm. but relevant. Yes. Therefore, we're actually undertaking a study to better understand the health-seeking behaviour of adults with suspected increasing intestinal permeability. And at the moment, we are recruiting, and we actually need about 400 participants to complete a a 20-minute online survey. So if you think you uh, have intestinal permeability or you know you have intestinal permeability, over the age of 18, living in Australia, please, we we want you to fill out this survey, um, and you can actually head over to Survey wordpress.com for a link to the survey. Um, and then before I finish up, Andrew, I must give my sincere and absolute 
gratitude thanks to um, my wonderful supervisors, mm-hmm. uh, Professor David Sibrett, Dr. Amy Steele, Dr. Erica McIntyre, and Dr. Janet Sloss for all their support and encouragement uh, for, for my PhD. You know, Brad, I've enjoyed speaking with you ever since I first met you at the NHAA, but there's one quick question I need to ask you before we go, and that is, do you think probiotics have the bang for buck, given the variables with regards to species, strain, dose, mixture, timing, all of that sort of thing? Or do you think probiotics are the way to go? Or do you think we should really be trying to work with the uh, patient's innate microbiota with regards to prebiotics and diet? The combination of both prebiotics and probiotics are essential. The thing that I need to emphasize is it comes down to the exact strain. We need to ensure that that's the strain that the, that the patient needs for the presenting complaint. None of this um, 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 just taking a probiotic for the sake of it. You need to take it because you need it. My knowledge is that the only strain that's shown that is Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. Is that correct or are there others? There are others, uh, Sassimilatis bellatio, yep. uh, you've got um, uh, 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 E. coli Nestle 1917, yep. um, there are a number of strains, limited research uh, and limited availability in Australia, uh, but more and more research is coming out uh, on the involvement of, of both pro and prebiotics uh, for the management of intestinal permeability within the research. Brad Leach, thank you so much for dispelling some of the myths, but also, you know, letting us know what are the the conundrums uh, and hopefully where we can find answers in the future with your research. Well done. And I look forward to welcoming you back to FX Medicine in the future. Thank you, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November, 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au.